Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. Um, I have some bad news for you. Um, as you turn to Hebrews chapter 8, I got an email this week. Um, is Colin Lowen here? He's in the upper latch right now. This is going to come to uh, especially sadness for Colin here and the other uh, Bible instruction students. I got this email from Pastor Jim this week. Uh, I dropped my hot pink phone at the airport. Screen broke and touch features dead, so I can't use it. I know. We're so excited to seeing that for years to come. And... It probably was Keith Temper's fault. He was probably calling him and he dropped the phone. Uh, but I guess maybe we can try to get him a new one. Um, if we, maybe if we load it with a bunch of Bob Dylan songs, he might take it. Um, uh, anyway, so I'm sorry to share that information with you. Um, also, as we begin, I want to uh, really commend you for your diligence uh, and your uh your patience or your, um, I, I guess, your studiousness as we've been working our way through Hebrews. Um, there's some fairly complex arguments, some fairly complex discussion going on within this letter of Hebrews. And, and it's not meant to be read a chapter a week. When, when the author of Hebrews sat down to write it, he didn't say, okay, I'm going to give this and I'm going to break it up and uh, they'll, they'll do part of it one week and then they'll come back and they, they were meant to really sit down and read the whole thing at once. And so some of the complexities of his argument, we sometimes, it, we, at least for me, as I'm, as I've been sitting and, uh, we've been going through this, it, it takes me a while to get back to where we've been. And, and it takes a lot of patience and, and endurance to sometimes dive in to a letter like Hebrews that has a lot of uh, complex stuff going on, and especially complex because of the context that it's being written to. And we've, we've talked about this uh, uh, several times, but this idea that, that Paul is writing to, to, or not Paul necessarily, uh, show my bias, I actually don't believe Paul wrote that wrote this letter, but I've been teaching First Thessalonians, which I do believe he wrote. Um, and so it's just kind of natural. But, uh, you know, Pastor Jim and I disagree on that, and someday we'll get to heaven and we'll find out that I was right. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, our author is, has been writing, and he's writing to, to Jewish Christians. Uh, and, and these are people who, who really are, for, most likely the time of writing, these are our first-generation Christians. That these are people who grew up in the world of Judaism, in the synagogues, in the temples, and an understanding of, of how God had been working for centuries through the people of Israel. And now something has shifted in Jesus Christ. And the, and the direction and the focus of this letter is meant to be understood primarily by people who have grown up in that world. And we haven't. We, this, this is not our world. And so we have to do a little bit of extra legwork to get to a place where we can understand the argument that our author is, is 
bringing to us. And so, again, I, I commend you for, for sticking with it and doing that because uh, we're, in, we're in really into the heart of this letter now. And uh, there's a lot that's going on and a lot that we can talk about. And it's especially difficult because we don't have time to look at every little detail that, that's being discussed and every minor issue of of this context. And so we're um, we're having to do that work and you're having to do some of that work on your own. Um, and so, again, uh, I commend you. And uh, as we begin, let's just go to the Lord in prayer this morning. God, as we... Dive into your word together as, as a community. We pray for open hearts, um, open minds uh, to the things that you have for us. May we be sensitive to the things that you are saying to us through your word. Uh, and may our hearts be changed by the way that you reveal yourself to us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, I have something for you. This is, I'm borrowing from my nephew T. Um, see what this is? What is what is this? Baseball field, right? And it's actually a game. Uh, you see the little players there. Um, and uh, if you, there's little, little ball bearings and you can shoot them out and pitch them to each other. It doesn't work like this because of gravity. But you have to do it on the table. Um, and it's pretty cool. You do balls and strikes, and you pitch it, and you play against each other, and you time the pitches, and you hit it, and you can adjust the bat for left-handed batters, right-handed batters, and um, you can do all kinds of really cool stuff with it. That's just that's one of the pieces. That's the outs. That's uh, anyway. Um, have you ever seen anything like this before? Or maybe like like a uh, Pastor Jim. Around Christmas time, he put up that picture of that hockey game that he really wanted. You remember that? Those little things where you spin the guys and they... Um, so, imagine if you had never seen a game of baseball before. Like a real game of baseball. And by the way, pitchers and catchers reported for spring training this week. There's celebration in, in our world, for some of us at least. Uh, uh, it's an exciting time. It's February. Baseball's coming back. Um, but just imagine, if you've never seen a game of baseball before, and this was, this was what you were handed, and, and maybe you grew up uh, loving this game. You played it all the time, and you thought, this, you know, this is, just, this is just amazing. You have your friends over. You'd play. You, um, I don't have it here, but there's, you can like keep score, like it comes with like a scorebook and the whole thing. And so you're playing and you do this for, for years and years. Uh, this is, this is baseball to you. And then imagine one day, uh, somebody takes you, uh, downtown and they walk you up to this giant building and you, and you, hand the person your ticket, they scan it, you walk inside, uh, and you walk into Safeco Field, and you see baseball. And you think, I thought this was baseball. But this is just an imitation. And this really only makes sense because of the real thing. Uh, this game, I, I don't know, you might have fun with this if you didn't know what baseball was, but the reason you play a game like this is because you enjoy watching, you enjoy thinking about baseball, and so you would play a game reflecting baseball. 
And imagine if you had never seen baseball and then only had experience with this. And then the wonder and the amazement that you would find when you walked in to the stadium for the first time and you saw real baseball happening. And you recognize that what this was, was not baseball, but it was just an imitation. Just pointing you towards the real thing. Hebrews chapter 8. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest for there are already priests who offer gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy of. And a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on this mountain. But in fact the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs. As the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. Which the new covenant is established. uh, Since the new covenant is established on better promises. What our author is telling us here is that the sanctuary, the temple, in which the priests have been offering sacrifices for centuries, is a mere imitation of the sanctuary uh, that is is before the Lord in heaven. And that the the high priest, um, again, uh, paying attention to the the complexity of, of the nation of Israel and all that they've experienced, that the high priest who has been going in year after year after year to offer atonement for the sins of the people, was simply serving in an imitation of the real thing. That this high priest was just a copy of the real thing. And, and this goes back to, to really what we've been looking at for weeks. Uh, and, and for the sake of time, we don't have time to go back to that. But this whole conversation that he's been giving us about Melchizedek and, and Aaron and the high priest and the value of, of Christ as this new high priest. He's making this argument that what has come before, what we have known, what we have experienced for generations was just the copy. It was a shadow. It was an imitation. It was not the real thing. And it was never meant to be the real thing. Uh, and and he's writing this, and, and we need to keep this in mind. We talked about this a little bit in our Sunday school class this morning, too. That m- for so many of these early Christians, uh, the context in which they receive these letters is one of, of persecution and suffering. And so uh, for us, it's important for us as, as we as we move into this this section of the letter to understand that this community has come face to face with suffering because of Jesus Christ. And, and in the midst of this suffering, in the midst of this persecution, there is a tendency to go back. And Pastor Jim shared, uh, mentioned this a few weeks ago. He said, uh, talked about the old Keith Green song, So You Want to Go Back to Egypt. 
And this idea that, that in the wilderness, as the people of, of God were move, coming out of Egypt and moving towards the promised land, things got hard for them. And the consistent refrain was, if we were just back in Egypt, yeah, life was hard, but it wasn't as hard as this. Can we just go back? And for these Christians facing persecution because of a new way of life and, and something new that God is doing in the world, they're saying, maybe it would just be easier if we went back. Maybe it would just be easier if we walked away from this and went back to the old way of doing things. And what our author is telling us, what he wants them to understand, is that the old way is just a copy. It's insufficient. It's not the real thing. And so you can't go back. You, there, there's nothing for you there. It's just, imagine if you continued, sure, you could still have fun with this, but imagine if you continued to think that this was actually baseball after you had seen the real thing. You think, well, that's, that's ludicrous. It's just a bunch of plastic. It's not baseball. It's not the real thing. And our author is telling us, uh, don't go back. And this, this, these first two verses here especially, they serve as a transition, moving from what we've just looked at, this whole idea of the high priest, to now what he's going to be talking about over the next two chapters of this new covenant that's going on. We're going to spend some time talking about that this week and next week. But let's just look again. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high Priest, This high priest that he's been talking about, Melchizedek, this, this one who's even greater than Aaron and the priest. He says, we have it. We do have such a high priest. There's ownership there. There's, there's, the purpose of this is a reassurance in the midst of their suffering. We, we have this high priest. This one that we've been learning about and talking about greater than Aaron. The one who's able to offer the sacrifices that are even more sufficient for our salvation. We have him. And what has this high priest done? This high priest has sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. The priest would only sit down when the work was completed. The priest would stand before the altar until the sacrifices were completed, till the atonement was paid for. And then he would sit down. And our author is telling us, here we have a high priest who has finished the work on our behalf. We do not have to go back to the old way and to continue to work for our salvation and continue to work and and perform these sacrifices year after year, week after week, offering, looking, seeking for, for forgiveness of our sins. We have a high priest who has already done it. And his ministry has taken place uh, not in the earthly sanctuary, which was a copy of the true sanctuary. But his ministry has taken place in the actual thing. Before God himself, uh, this sacrifice has been offered and it's been paid for. We have ownership in this high priest. And then he moves uh, 
in verse 7 here. He says, For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors or say to one another, know the Lord. Because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Uh, again, so uh, uh, for, our, for our context, uh, to pause and to... To reflect on this language of covenant. Now, this is not a word that we necessarily use all the time in, in our culture and in our language. Uh, but to go back and to, and to recognize that, uh, and we're gonna spend, we're gonna spend some time talking about this in more detail next week, so I don't wanna get too far ahead of us. Uh, but just to, to remember and to think about what a covenant was. Uh, specifically the covenant that God, that God is talking about here, uh, referencing back to Jeremiah, is, is talking about this old covenant that God made with the people of Israel as they came out of Exodus. And so they came out of Egypt and into, and into, this, into the wilderness and they met with God on Mount Sinai. And they met with him and, and they had, God began to give them the law and he began to give them instructions. And essentially what happened in this context was was that God made a contract or a, a covenant is, is the language of, of Scripture. He made, he made an agreement and a pact with the people of Israel. And we see this reference even in, in the passage of Jeremiah that, that our author of Hebrews quotes here. I will be their people and they will be my God. And the people came before God and God says, I have, I have rescued you out of Egypt. And now I set before you these instructions. And if you agree to these instructions, then I will be your God and you will be my people. And the people said, yes, this is what we want. We are joining in on this agreement. We are, are, are binding ourselves to this covenant with God. Uh, this is not very different than, than other legal covenants that would have taken place uh, at that time. A king would often make a covenant with the people of the, of the city or the nation that he ruled over. And he would say, I will be your king, and as your king, here are my responsibilities to you as, as king. I will raise up an army and, and defend you. I will protect you. I will offer these sorts of things. And you will be my people. And as my people, you will uh, give obedience and you will give your sons to fight in the army and you will do these different things. And they would make this agreement. This king would rule over them. And, and this is very similar to what God is doing with the people in the wilderness. They make a covenant together. 
And so when, when we see this language of covenant here in, in Hebrews chapter 8, uh, for us, maybe we, we don't necessarily understand, but they would have instantly thought, oh yeah, covenant, old covenant, that was Moses, that was Israel, that was us, that was the covenant that we signed up for. Uh, and not just we, our parents, and our great, 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 you know, centuries earlier, but we have signed up for this. As the people of Israel, we are still a part of the covenant. But our author says that there's something wrong with the covenant. And that, and that this has been recognized actually for years. That the covenant was not perfect. And so he says again in verse 7, if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have sought for another. But God found fault with the people. And, and what we see here um, in, this, in this lengthy quote, this is actually the longest quote from the Old Testament that we have in the New Testament scriptures. Uh, and this is coming from Jeremiah chapter 31. We see here that, that what was wrong with the covenant uh, is that the people did not remain faithful to their end of the bargain. That God had remained faithful, but the people who said, yes, here are the things that we will do to be your people. Uh, they didn't do those things. And if you go back to the Old Testament, you see again and again, God sends prophet after prophet after prophet saying, come back and all will be forgiven. Come back, come back, come back. And they don't do it. Until finally God says, it's done. And he sends the people, he sends the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and they come and they take the people into exile. But even in the midst of their unfaithfulness, God does not forsake his people, Israel. And so he says through the prophet Jeremiah, to a people who are currently in exile in Babylon. He says, don't worry. I will come and I will establish a new covenant. We will, we will make a new agreement. And this agreement we see here is one that I will establish. Verse 10 here of, of Hebrews chapter 8. This is the covenant I will establish with the house of Israel after that time. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is the promise that God has given. And what our author is saying is that, is that this new covenant, and we'll, again we'll see this next week, this new covenant has been enacted through the blood of Jesus Christ. When Jesus gathers with his disciples on the night that he is betrayed, they share a meal together. And what, what this meal would have participated, what would have been happening normally, this Passover meal, is the, is the people of Israel would gather around their tables and they would share in the bread and the cup and they would say, this is the blood of the covenant that God has made with his people, a reminder, the, the cup of wine that they would, they would share in 
was a reminder of the blood of the lamb that had offered forgiveness for them all the way back at the Passover. And again, there's all as as I'm uh, making these references. If uh, the, maybe some of you here that say, well, "What are all these things that you're referring to?" Um, we don't have time to get into that. Um, but the the point of this to say that these people would have understood this language. Um, and and I'd love to if if you are like, "What are you talking about?" Uh, talk to me. I'd love to kind of work with you through these things. Um, but this, so this, this old covenant, they would have gathered around the table and say, here is the blood of the covenant, a reminder of the Passover lamb that brought about their salvation out of Egypt. But when Jesus gathers with his disciples and they share in the bread and the cup, he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. It is my blood poured out for you. And he reinterprets the blood of the Lamb to be his own sacrifice, which was about to come on the cross. And he says, this is the blood of the new covenant, which brings about forgiveness of sins. He's referring to Jeremiah chapter 31. Uh, And he's referring to this idea that forgiveness would come. And, and that this was going to come through his sacrifice. That this was the means for salvation now. It was no longer the lamb. But it was now the lamb of God. Who would bring about salvation. And so Paul, when he again is teaching on communion, he says, uh, When you eat this bread and when you drink this cup, you will say... Uh, Just as Christ said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. That when we participate as a church in communion, we are remembering the new covenant that has come through Jesus Christ. And we see, we don't have time to to look into all of this, but there's a level in which this covenant has been brought about through Jesus Christ. But there's a level in which this covenant is yet to be completed, specifically for the nation of Israel. And so if we were to continue reading in Jeremiah chapter 31, there's all of this discussion about a a reestablished Jerusalem and a reestablished temple that would never be destroyed. Uh, we We know just from world history that that has not yet happened. And so there's still a future fulfillment of this covenant for the nation of Israel that God has promised. And yet there there is this portion of the covenant that is for us today. Specifically, the forgiveness of sins. And Paul calls himself elsewhere in Second Corinthians, he calls himself a minister of this new covenant. And so, for our purposes, for, for what we're looking at, for what we need to understand here, what, what our author wants us to grasp, is that the old way was not good enough. It could not do the work that we needed it to do. And now something new is here and we have it. We have the high priest. We have the beginning of this new covenant and it is effective for the forgiveness of our sins. It has been accomplished in the high priest who we have. And meanwhile, all the way back in Jeremiah's day, 
they knew that the old way was not going to last. Something new was needed. And so he's saying to them as they face persecution, as they face suffering, don't go back to what was insufficient. Don't go back to it. And now, um, as we as we hold all of that, I want us to, to step back and think. Okay, this is this is a great message for them, uh, these Jewish Christians who are facing persecution. What do we do with our context? Uh, we don't have the temple. We're not tempted to go back and worship in the sanctuary anymore. Like those things. Uh, are not relevant for us. And yet they are. Uh, uh, Turn to Colossians chapter 2. Let's go back. uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Uh, This is one that Paul is writing. Um, And he's writing to uh, a mostly Gentile Christian audience. And he speaks and he says very similar things to what our author in Hebrews is saying. But he, he directs them towards this, uh, this different audience. So in Colossians chapter 2, uh, let's just begin in verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Again, this is the things that we have just been looking at in Hebrews, the work that Christ has done on the cross. The work that our author of Hebrews says he did in the new temple in 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 the actual sanctuary, offering the sacrifice for forgiveness of sins. Paul is saying here, this work of forgiveness of sins has been accomplished for us on the cross. It's completed. Therefore, verse 16, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. Again, the same language that we had in Hebrews. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such people also go into great detail about what they have seen, and their unspiritual minds puff them up with idle notions. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, but with their their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. What is Paul saying here? He's saying that you have been forgiven. The work of Christ has accomplished your salvation. And yet there are some people who 
are coming along to this Christian community and saying, okay, what it really means to be a Christian, what you really have to do is uh, observe these specific days. Or you have to follow this specific set of rules. Do not, in this phrase, do not taste, do not touch. Uh, you have to, you have to, you have to live your life in this specific way. You have to you have to line up with these rules. And this is what it means to worship. And this is what it means to follow after God. And if you're not doing that, then you're not quite there yet. And they would have understood this because they are coming out of, even these Gentile Christians are coming out of a pagan tradition in which there are specific things that God, the gods would have required of them in order to participate in worship. And oftentimes, as Christians, there are specific things that we require of ourselves in order to participate in worship. And we might say, yes, of course, I believe that God has forgiven me, but I also have to do A, B, C, X, Y, Z. I have to match up. I have to measure up in my life. If I'm not, you know, if I'm not spending 15 minutes a day reading scripture and, you know, an hour in prayer and I'm, you know, then obviously I'm, you know, God's probably disappointed in me. But what Paul is saying, what the author of Hebrews is saying for, for the Jews and what Paul is saying for us is that there are, it's, the work has already been accomplished in Christ. It is finished. That there is nothing more that we have to do to measure up. To find acceptance, to find a, a place in God's family. The work has been accomplished on the cross. Don't go back to that old way of trying to, to earn your way to God. And oftentimes the tendency is to say, yes, of course, I'm forgiven, but we're still trying to earn our way to, into God's favor. Or maybe sometimes we're trying to earn our way into other people's favor uh, within the church. But, and, and, and maybe this is an aside. If we are the ones who are asking people to earn their way to our favor because, and saying that this is how God will be pleased with you, uh, we need to stop. We are the ones who are saying, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. You have to observe these. Days. No, the work has already been accomplished in Jesus Christ. And that there is nothing more required. Do not go back to that way of thinking. Do not go back to trying to earn God's favor. Do not go back to thinking that the things of worship that are meant to point us towards Christ are the end in and of themselves. That these things that we do, that we, these standards that we set for ourselves and for others, oftentimes are good because they're meant to point us towards Jesus Christ. Uh, but oftentimes we say, we turn it into a checklist of are we doing those things? And we begin to focus on what we are doing, what we're not doing, instead of recognizing that even as we, uh, even as we trust in the word of God, sometimes we, we make this God itself, instead of understanding it as the way in which God reveals himself to us. The goal is not to read through the Bible in a year, the goal is to know Christ through his word. The goal is not to, to show up and, and be at church 
But the goal is to know Christ and to celebrate him through our worship. How many of you have been to Disneyland? How many of you go to Disneyland? I see Faith, Weber's. Yeah. Uh, For those of you that go to Disneyland, you know so many things about what's going on in that world, don't you? There are things, there, there are the little secrets that nobody knows about, and there's like, oh, you know, if you look here, you'll see this thing. And, uh, and for those of you that maybe have been, you should go with one of these people sometime. <laughs> uh, the, the, this world of Disneyland is constructed with all of this intricate detail. And imagine if you were to, to become aware or to know all of this detail, and you were to walk through uh, with a checklist, and you have your, you know, you have your notepad, and you're going through, and you're saying, saw that thing, went on that ride, did this, uh, oh, I noticed that little thing, you know, and you have your book, uh, and and you do that, and then you go home. That's not the point of Disneyland. Uh, the point of Disneyland isn't to be aware of all of these things that are happening. And the reason that the, the Imagineers, right? Is that right? The reason the Imagineers put all of these things into Disneyland is not just so that we can say, oh, that's interesting. Disneyland is constructed for us to have fun when we go there, Right? It's, it's there for us to enjoy and delight. And, and the specifics, the, the details, the, the minor things that, that are, oh, that's, that's cool. Like those are put in so that we can enjoy our experience more fully. And so that we want to keep coming back for more and more and more. And this is the purpose of what we do as a church. This is the purpose of worship. This is the purpose of gathering. This is the purpose of, of knowing God and studying scripture and spending time in prayer. It's not just so that we can know a bunch of things about God and we can say, well, I did those things for him. God invites us. He, he, he says, don't do these things. Don't, uh, the, the very next thing that Paul is saying is, is put aside your, your anger and your lust, your evil desires, your greed, and put on compassion and love and kindness. He's saying all of these things not because he wants to give us a new set of rules, but he wants us to enjoy him. And he wants us to enjoy the life that he has given us. And when we gather to worship, we don't gather just because it's something we're supposed to do, but we do it so that we can delight in God. We understand that the work has already been finished. We're not showing up to do more work for him. We're showing up to celebrate him and to worship him because it's fun. And I don't know, I mean, church maybe not isn't as fun as Disneyland. Uh, but you get to the delight of what God is doing in and through a body that gathers week to week to week. Sometimes it can feel mundane. Sometimes the routines of it can feel just like a checklist. But the purpose, God isn't saying you have to do these things. 
But he's inviting us to do these things so that we can know him more fully because he knows that our knowledge of him is the path to life. And oftentimes, we head back to that old way of thinking that, well, I, I got I to check off the list in order to please God, in order to find favor, in order to find salvation, and yet he's already done it. And what he says to us is, come and delight in the freedom that I have given you, in the grace that you have received. There's nothing more that needs to be done. Come and delight in the life that I have to offer you. Don't go back to that old way that's demanding so much more of you, but come and delight and celebrate in my goodness, in my grace. Proclaim my goodness and my grace because it is the word of life. We're invited uh, by the author of Hebrews. We're invited by Paul uh, to delight in our Lord, to praise him, uh, to gather and worship, to, to know him through the word so that we can know a God who is good. Not because of the rules, but because of his goodness. Come out of the shadows And stop mistaking the shadows for the real thing, but see the real thing that is in Jesus Christ. And know it and enjoy it. Let's pray. God, we we pause to, to reflect on on the ways in which we often have mistaken. Uh, the imitation for the real thing. Uh, we just take a moment to uh, to repent of that, to turn from that, and we ask for eyes to see and ears to hear the ways in which you are calling us into a life of freedom and grace, uh, which nothing more is required. But we can say that we have a high priest who has already accomplished the work. We have a Savior who has already brought about our salvation. And as we turn from the ways in which we uh, have settled for the imitation, uh, we turn to you with open arms to receive that life. And may we step into this freedom in new ways this week. Uh, offering ourselves not out of guilt, uh, but out of pleasure. May we delight in you. Pray this in your name. Amen. Line, uh, you who are weary, come home. As I think about my own life, the ways that I'm often trying to still operate under the old system and and please God and, and earn favor and... Uh, And then I remember that it's already been done. It feels a lot like coming home sometimes. It feels a lot like, oh yeah, this is what we started with, right? This is grace. Uh, And the invitation, again, is again, uh, as we saw all the way back in Hebrews 4, uh, we have rest in Christ. It's already been done for us. Come home. Uh, Rest in the work that has already been accomplished on your behalf. May you know that more fully this week.
must have been for the dance crew. I guess. Not for us. <clears throat> Yeah, personal cheers.